0: Alright, very good. There's some bee backers here you're going to want to say hi to and uh, greet each other. But let's be seated. We'll try to move ourselves along here today. My sermon is only about an hour and a half, so it probably... I'm only messing with you. What I am going to do is is, uh, shorten some things, take some things out, uh, because I'm looking across that lake. And if you've been here for any period of time, you know that fuzzy look. Is probably more water I'll try to be very aware But I think it's worth consideration And to still take a few minutes And to consider his word Um, Those words and those songs Actually took us to a place Where we can actually dial in That's the design and the idea So let's take a few minutes and do that If you have an electronic version uh, You may want to turn to Matthew chapter 5 We're actually going to look at the very end of chapter 4 we're in a series, we just started last week, which is titled, The Great Reversal. Basically, the Beatitudes have been considered a number of different ways through history. And often they're considered almost like their uh, ethical standards to be aspired to be a part of. But when you actually look at the Beatitudes and compare them to the vast history of Beatitudes that predates them because there are many others that were back in Jewish tradition in the Hebrew Bible and in classical Greek uh, writings and so forth. It was a very common method to say the state of being of a person is blessed if they are blank. It was a very common thing in the ancient Near East. And so... What Jesus does is grabs a common form, but he flips the content over on its head because he starts in to say, wait, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was last week. And this week, blessed are those who mourn for they shall receive comfort. Now, how many of you really are hopeful to get some good mourning in today? Anybody looking forward to that? Uh, no. See, it's the aspiration to these things actually as... Behaviors doesn't make a lot of sense unless you look at the deeper thing that Jesus is actually trying to communicate, which is, of such as these is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at chapter 4 of Matthew, if you have your Bibles there. We're just going to look at the very end because it kind of rallies up and says that uh, in verse 17, from uh, this time on, after Jesus had moved up to the north in Israel, Jesus began to preach, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near." That's the summary of what we're going to be looking at. This whole sermon, five, six, seven, a little bit of eight, is all about the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew's phrase that was very common. Luke actually captures, he uh, captures it in the same methodology in the same kind of discussion as to what Jesus was doing. Look at verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing diseases, affecting people's lives, and bringing the kingdom to bear in real life. That was what he was accomplishing. Then we look down, it says here, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, his disciples came to him. In Luke, it very specifically says he went to a very flat place and his disciples came to him. It's fascinating to look at the difference. One of the things I won't do today is do a compare and contrast between the Luke 6 passage, but you should look at that. Actually, Luke 6 and then connecting into chapter 11 does the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a bunch of information in between there, in the Luke version of it, if you will, after he did his research. But here's how this starts. Now, if you want to know the bookends of Jesus' teaching, if you want to know the, the, the inclusion, the front end and the back end, this is the front right here. The back end is actually back at the end of the book of John as Jesus is talking about various and sundry things. The interesting thing is that this idea of comforting is actually very important in both of these aspects right here. So let's look at verse 3 in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you look down to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's like a bracketing of information. This is what I'm talking about is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. 5. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Merciful will be given mercy. Pure in heart will see God, peacemakers will be called the children of God, and so forth. And so, right in here, the second little comment is that those who mourn are blessed. That's a state of being, if you will, because they will receive comfort. Now, I think there's a couple of simple questions that it can help us to uh, consider so that we can better grasp the idea of what Jesus is talking about. Before we head into these questions, I want to just make one more comment on kingdom. How many of you are aware of Handel's famous Messiah, the great Messiah that is usually played in the Christmas context? It's interesting because there's three great movements in the Messiah. In the first one, it's basically the old text of promise of the Messiah coming, the kingdom coming on earth in the first grand movement. It's got the comfort, you know, all of the beautiful pieces from the Old Testament pulled out of Isaiah and several other places. Then in the second movement, there's a, a, the arrival. Jesus is born. There's a, The kingdom actually comes alive in front of us. Do you remember what's at the end of the second great movement? It's actually the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah, right? The famous thing. Now, if you wrote it, you probably would have put that at the end of the very last piece. Why did Handel put the Hallelujah Chorus at the end of the second great movement? Especially when the third great movement is talking about the final, the second arrival of Jesus and the final kind of awa- kind of the awareness of it in heavenly realms. Handel did not put the great kingdom thinking at the end of the movement because in their mind frame and in in that entire part of history, the church had considered that honestly, the kingdom was coming to bear here on earth in real time, with real people, in real places. They weren't thinking outside of the context into eternity as much of the kingdom thinking. They were thinking here on earth. That was true into the 16th and even in the 17th century and even part of the 18th century, which was the beginning of that when, when this was written. But with the enlightenment, with the change of thinking, with the, the whole idea of human humanism and human capacity being developed, people started saying, actually, what we've got to do is take the kingdom of heaven and kind of punt it into eternity and say, this isn't really going to happen here because we're watching the kingdoms of the earth and this it, apparently that's not going to go down here. And so it shifts. And all of theology actually starts focusing and moving the idea of the kingdom into eternity. And, and so we started saying things like the gospel is not the gospel of the kingdom on earth. The gospel is the kingdom of you go to heaven when you die. That's what we started saying. And the whole church, it became like a mantra of how things worked. Jesus is offering kingdom right now, real time, real people, here. That is actually going to be the great reversal that you'll catch all the way through this summer as we look at all of these beatitudes, as we realize, actually, Jesus was talking about something that was not normal thinking of what it felt like to have heaven on earth. But it was definitely what he was speaking of, was heaven here, us, now. So, let's ask this question. First of all, what did Jesus mean by mourning? Now, when you think of morning, what do you think of? Um, now, this is not the morning like uh, evening and morning and there was one, no. This is morning like M-O-U-R. Do you think of it in a context that is kind of a general... Idea, The fascinating thing is if you take this entire passage of these Beatitudes and you make them be about this is how you're supposed to go live, what a lot of commentators do is they take this and they say this is mostly mourning about sin. You mourn your sin. You mourn the fact that you failed God, that you failed others, that you missed your mission. That is part of that in here. But way more included in this is actually the mourning, a sense of a major loss. It was used often in a very kind of context. Mourning, this, this word was used that way as a sense of like a real reason to grieve. There has been loss. How many of you have experienced any kind of significant loss in your life? It's pretty much ubiquitous, isn't it? For all of us. This is a reality of life. Now, the next obvious question is, how is it kingdom life to be experiencing mourning? I thought that's kind of the opposite of kingdom life. Is it possible maybe Jesus is teaching us a different view of what kingdom life is? Is that possible? Is it possible that it isn't just all roses and rainbows and and babies singing in heaven, right? It is actually right in the middle of your worst Loss and the attending grieving that goes with it. The kingdom is available right there. Pretty interesting. I don't think that we usually consider it in that way. Here's what Paul said. If you want to turn with me back to Second Corinthians, now this is a jump. Paul was not directly referring to this passage, so I'm not trying to say that. But I think this list gives us a real sense of what we're talking about here Paul in 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 and if you want to keep your finger there because we're going to look at the front part of 2nd Corinthians Paul says this as God's co-workers we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain and then he goes on look I tell you now is the time of God's favor now is the day of salvation salvation is very much connected in comforting which we're going to look at next And it's in a contrast to mourning is what's going on. But look at what Paul does right here. And he says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now listen to this list. This is a mournful list. We're in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots hard work sleepless nights hunger how many of you have brand new children and the sleepless nights thing resonates with you right in purity understanding patience kindness now those are all blessings he mixes it right in with the list of all these difficult things have you noticed that before In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in both our right and left hands, through glory and dishonor, he shifts it back. Bad report, good report... Genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Now he's doing contrasts. We're known, yet we're gar- regarded as unknown. We're dying, and yet we live on. We've been beaten, but not killed. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. And then look what he does. We've spoken this freely to you, Corinthians, and we've opened our hearts wide to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but for some reason, you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as children. Open your hearts wide to us. Now we're getting somewhere. Why do all those things go on? All of those difficult, horrible circumstances. Did God forget about us? Did we get a sense of, uh uh-oh, um we have failed God and now he's punishing us and, and we're in big trouble? Did it, is it like, oh, maybe Satan's winning the battle? What do we think is going on here? Actually, in all of those worst case scenarios, that's where the grace is actually grabbed. Right there. And he says to them, look guys, I'm not just telling you this so I can pat myself on the back. I'm opening my heart up and my reality to you so that you engage with me and I engage with you. That's how this works. That's what makes this so astounding. It's not to just fix everything. It's actually to engage it in such a way that we actually access comfort. And that's where we're going to go next because that's what we receive. Now, let me ask you the next obvious question. When you hear comfort, what do you think of there? Now, typically, and this is not wrong, we think of, I'm in great distress and I need somebody to come and somehow make me feel better. It's not 100% wrong. But to be honest with you, that's at the shallowest level of what this word is all about. This word is fascinating. It's the same word used in uh, in the part of the very first part of second Corinthians it's the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit when Jesus talks about him at the end of the book of John and it's the same word that he grabs here it's you've probably heard it before para cleats is the two pieces of it there's different forms of that but para means to be alongside of involved with um, part of the deal And the kletos is a sense of we're engaged with each other. Now let me tell you some of what what this word was about. It's fascinating because going all the way back to the Old Testament, picking it up in the Septuagint, how many of you have heard of the Septuagint? You heard about that? A bunch of you have. The Septuagint was a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible that was very, very popular In Jesus' time, in Paul's time. In fact, Paul moted from the Septuagint. So there's Greek words that are actually translations from very ancient times of what the Hebrew Bible said. And you know what word they used? They used this very same word to describe the sense of comfort. But here's what they meant. Often it was military again. Often, you guys remember the movie 300 with Leonidas? And he's calling, a, a number of you remember that. The call to arms, where he said, we need soldiers and we need them here now. That calling word is this same word, paracletas. It's the exact same, the verb form of that. It's also used to say, you know what, I'm encouraging you. I'm filling you up with courage. You hear that even in that word. I'm saying to you, there's a responsibility that you have. There's a sense of duty attached to it. There's a sense of fulfillment of something moving ahead. It doesn't say, just feel better. Over here, if you need me. It says, actually, we look each other in the eye right now, and there's a responsibility that we've got to get about here. There's something to do. And when those around us are mourning, especially if you've been in a position where you've actually received comfort, this is an awareness. It's something that you can say, I'm here. Look at what happens back in Second Corinthians in the first chapter. So I jumped over to chapter 6 to begin with, but at, at the very beginning of the book, this is literally his intro to the letter. Paul says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, same word. Who comforts us in all our troubles, same word. So that we can do what? Comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You think Paul forgot that he used that word that many times? There's no way. There's emphasis here. This is a call to arms. This is a, an encouragement. This is engagement. And this is also to say, I'm walking with you through this. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance in the same sufferings that we suffer. Endurance is a big part of this thing. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. I mean, listen, to it's almost redundant. Like he's saying the same thing over and over. But why is he saying this? Because we don't want you to be uninformed, guys, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we thought we would lose our lives. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Have you ever realized that the resurrection is not just a finality to the the cross week or the finality to the passion story? Resurrection actually is the... It's the down payment. It's the guarantee. It's the reason that we can offer each other comfort. If it wasn't for resurrection, we have nothing. But because of the resurrection, we can rely on God because he raised Christ. Even if he lets us die, the resurrection gives us hope beyond death. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he'll deliver us again. And on him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you have helped us by our prayer, by your prayer, excuse me, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer of many. You see where he just went there? Comfort, something, might have something to do with prayer as well. So here's a thought. If we know that this is the, one of the great state of beings that is blessed, and that is we mourn and we receive comfort, then what do we do about that? Should we go looking for things to be mournful about? I can pretty confidently tell you that life will bring plenty on its own. Okay, You don't have to go invent things to be mournful about. And in fact... If you're in a season and in a time where there's not great pressure on you and there's not an amazing sense of grief and loss right now, you're in that position so that you can pour comfort out to others. It puts you in that spot. It gives you that opportunity. And when you need it, here's the first thing I want you to consider. When you are in the place of mourning loss, Receive comfort. This may be the biggest mistake that we make as Christians today. Is we think somehow it's a sign of weakness. We think somehow we need to pull ourselves together. We we, uh, need to, I don't know, we go for help in so many different, various different ways. Or we read articles or we do things. We avoid the ones that are right next to us who have what we need. I find that fascinating. And I find it actually runs contrary to what our whole mission is. Is it possible that our vocation, which described all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, which was we're going to bring order to chaos and we're going to bring life where there's death, doesn't that sound a lot like comforting? Doesn't that sound a lot like walking up and saying, okay, you've got to make some decisions right now. These are really hard decisions. I get it. How can I enter in and bring some wisdom in a sense of confidence while the storm's not blowing for me right now? That's bringing order to chaos. That's, that's reflecting your main vocation. And then, when there's actually been death, because loss, in its greatest sense, even if it's a loss of a job or a loss of a number of things, it always feels like death. We need someone to come and bring life Real, honest to goodness, look them in the eye, life. We need that. This is actually, if you think back in the series before this, when we talked about vocation and and being people who are servants of God, this is what it looks like when people are mourning loss. We need to be looking for them to find them so that we can receive from the people who are in strength positions, we can receive The comfort. The truth is, in that case, in the exchange, you are the weak one. You're the one who has less than and you need someone to bring to you. Receive it. But then, just wait, you'll have opportunity to actually give it out. And every time you walk through a major event, it gives you more and more specific strength, specific opportunities to share things that bring strength. Right now we're in kind of the throes in our family. With my wife's mother who is struggling into dementia going down in. And you know a number of you have been in that spot. If I ask for hands it's probably half the people right now. That have been in there or are in there right now. And it's interesting because we keep trying to talk with each other, and we are, we're communicating well, we're reading, we're trying to learn things. Uh, The other day, we got an email from a lady who lived very close to Jenny's mom for a lot of years, and has lost more than one husband on her journey. And she said three things that, honestly, the minute I heard those sentences I said to Jenny, that's... That's the best advice we've gotten from anybody in the whole picture, right there, in those three simple sentences. Why? Because she trusts God. She's lost greatly. And she was willing to step across the divide and say, look guys, just from experience, consider this, consider this, consider this. We needed her. We need her. And she has picked that up. She has said, that's part of what I'm all about here, is to do that. So, to comfort, bring comfort to others. And last, what this passage says, and gives us, that's very clear, is prayer. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal? Sorry, my bad, touching that. You may say, what's the big deal there, uh, about prayer? Especially, is this going to make the person feel better? Is it going to change the circumstances? Maybe neither of those. Does it show faith and trust in God to actually work through the entire equation? Yes, it does. If you think for a minute that our job as Christians, as followers, who are actually about the business of living these beatitudes as they come to bear in us, if you think it's our job to somehow equalize all the pain and suffering in the world or reduce all the pain and suffering in the world, that is not even what God has in mind at all. What God does have in mind is a sense of trusting Him in the entire process and with the larger equation. So that we can say, I am in mourning and I need comfort and others come to me. But it's not to somehow fix things or or solve the equation. It doesn't do that. It doesn't resolve anything. It does put trust in God to pray though and say, God, we desperately need you to work through this whole thing. We can't see it. We don't know how it's going to work out. But we've got to trust you. So the three things. Receive it, give it, and pray it. And that would actually be living into what Jesus said is this second great position of blessedness. Not because you just want more mourning or that you just want to be like some kind of a helper person, it is the whole equation works. The whole thing works. It's always working and you're always working in it. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful to you that you have given us, first of all, a little bit more dry weather. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. So we could uh, consider a little bit more because these these, uh, postures of being in your kingdom we all of us feel some deficiency there as uh, living into those but much more importantly than just trying to grasp for being a better mourner if we can actually understand what you're doing in the whole equation that you bring about the uh, circumstances of life so that we receive comfort from you and from each other and then you give us other opportunities where we give comfort and are part of your kingdom that's where this actually really happened thank you for the vocation you've given us thank you for the blessing thanks for the courage and encouragement that i have received from others on my journey and help me to be ready and willing to step in to do that for others as well I pray that in jesus name amen